0: But I have realized despair is not a motivator to action. Anger's not, social psychology tells us that it's hope that will get us to have change that lasts. You've
1: tuned in to how it looks from here, life in the time of climate change. In today's conversation, you'll hear how this podcast is in transition from a focus on how life looks during COVID to the larger view of life in climate change with all its challenges. The fact is that here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty that fills our days, life still and always looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters so, we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with Pamela Reed Sanchez, CEO of a nonprofit that supports the Seneca Zoo in Rochester, New York. We met at Elk River Writers Workshop where Pamela spent a week honing her considerable skill as a writer. We spoke together in the library of a 125-year-old resort built around a geothermal hot spring in Yellowstone country in a stretch of land known as the Paradise Valley. Hi, this is Mary Claire, and this is How It Looks From Here. In this episode, I'm getting to talk with Pamela Reed Sanchez. She is a writer, and that is why I am getting to meet her, because we are both taking different roles in a writing workshop out in the Paradise Valley of Montana. Pamela is the president and CEO of the Seneca Park Zoo Society. And she's been in that role for seven years. Essentially, she is an advocate for the well being of wilderness, of wildlife, and of the environment in general. I'm so happy you're here.
0: Thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. I want to write that down and keep it and have it always be my introduction.
1: <laughs> well, it's just, I'm delighted to get to meet you. And I'm, you know, we are shifting right now um, from a focus on COVID 19. Um, and how people have been dealing with that, to a broader focus on climate change in general. And uh, one of the first things I'd wonder if you would speak to is, what do you see as the relationship between COVID-19 and climate breakdown?
0: So that's a great question, Mary Clara. And one of the things that I think has become so aware. I work very much in the environmental justice arena as well and um, my zoo, the zoo that I met is in Rochester, New York, upstate New York, uh, right on Lake Ontario. Um, we literally, our backyard is the mighty Genesee River. Uh, it's, an, it's an incredible place, wonderfully diverse, um, important migratory routes for birds and other species. Um, but we have some very serious issues related to environmental justice. And I think that one of the things that COVID 19 allowed us to see is well, two things. But first, related to environmental justice, there's finally an awareness that the health disparities in communities of color um, that have been around since redlining and before, if we're honest with ourselves, became more known to a larger group of people. Because you could see the disparity in health status based on who was getting sickest. Um, the people who live closest together the, you know in urban settings, the people who are working the essential minimum wage jobs, who are having to put themselves at risk every day to get to work because they've got to work to feed their family. These were the people and who already have the underlying health conditions of living that come from when you live in an environmental injustice area. You're more likely to be diabetic. You're more likely to have asthma. You are less likely to see a doctor when the first symptoms arise. So, you know, more likely to go to the emergency room or urgent care when you have a and only when you have a very serious issue. Those things have been around for a long time. But as COVID hit those populations in larger numbers and people were sicker, there was a bit of a, oh, there's something happening here related to those communities that we should be paying attention to. And so for me, you know, COVID-19, environmental justice, um, and climate change, you can't, you can't tease those apart. It's not mm-hmm. possible to talk about one without the other. And, and I think the other thing that COVID-19 did, I, I talk about it as a silver lining. Um, and I think we have to find a lot of silver linings in the trauma that we have all experienced as a world. But one of, one of the silver linings is that more people found peace in nature during this time. And more people were going out on trails on the weekend because it was a safe place to go. Uh, I saw a lot more people on my hiking trails than I had in, in previous um, years. And it was clearly people who um, were new to it, who didn't know what bird that was that they were seeing and what was making that sound. And frankly, who cares what the name of the bird is? You're getting joy from it and you're finding peace and your heart rate is going down and you're de-stressing. And people discovered they love nature. And it was people of all ethnicities, all socioeconomic levels, nature was a safe place to go. Well, guess what? Zoos are also safe places to go. And so during COVID, when we, we were shut down for 104 days and when we reopened, the demand was there. People weren't scared to come to a zoo because it's primarily an outdoor experience. Um, you could choose whether to go inside to the indoor habitats or not. And we monitored the number of people going in and out, but we saw people meeting up for the first time, to see friends and family in a safe place, they come to zoos and they always have come to zoos for the social experience and because it's outdoors and it's animal-based, and kind of in that order.
1: So you mean the social experience between humans?
0: Yes, but the, but the beauty of a zoo is that people don't have to feel like they have, need a certain level of education or dress a certain way to come to a zoo. We all feel safe at a zoo, we feel comfortable. And um, the diversity of our guests was amazing and it continues to be even more diverse than it was before COVID. But the job of zoos as conservation organizations, which many people don't know that the best zoos, the accredited zoos through Association of Zoos and Aquariums, we are conservation organizations. And our job is to inspire people to fall so deeply in love with the animals that they see and learn about their plight in a way that then moves them to want to behave differently so that those animals are always existing. So you come and you meet these adorable red panda cubs and you can't get enough of them and then you look at the sign and you see how few are left in nature and you see on that sign that it says great threats to you know, why is this happening? Why are the numbers plummeting? Climate change. Human degradation of habitat, you know, habitat loss. That's on us. So, we want people to learn while they're there, fall in love, and learn that what we're experiencing is human caused. And therefore, humans have an obligation and a responsibility to fix it, to find ways to behave differently. Now, when you're talking about a red panda, all the way across the world or a snow leopard or a lion or an African elephant whatever it might be you think that's way far away mm-hmm. that's that's a literally a world away what can I do about that in Rochester New York or Manhattan or wherever it is that you live that you live well combine those two things there's these animals out there that the the endangered rates are going up and endangered by the way means there's still time to act and then you've got this new love of nature in your own backyard that you've discovered. And then you come to that place at the zoo and every good zoo has one of this, which is here's your backyard, here's your region. Uh, and for us at Seneca Park Zoo, um, Lake Sturgeon were extirpated from the Genesee River and our zoo's been very involved in repatriation, you know, working with USGS and US Fish and Wildlife, Department of Environmental Conservation with New York State, we have helped um, starting 20 years ago, 18 years ago actually, to release fingerlings into the Genesee River. And now 18 years later, we have a good news story. Those female sturgeon that were released 18 years ago and tagged are ready. They're back in the river. You know, they've, they've grown up, they've gone out a little bit to the lake, they come back. The males were ready a couple years ago because this is how sturgeon work, but the females are ready and we're going to see a generation of Lake Sturgeon in the Genesee River. So right there in our backyard, and and we do a lot of work with pollinators and monarch um, habitat, uh, and, and teaching people that endangered isn't just a world away, it's right here in our own backyard. And if you're seeing fewer bumblebees and if you're seeing fewer monarchs, you can do something about that. Mm-hmm. And we give people the tools and the inspiration to do something about it. And I'm, I'm sorry, yeah.
1: No, this is wonderful. <laughs>
0: you have now
1: taken us on a, a trail through the realities of injustice in healthcare access and in environmental circumstances where people live. So right. I would like for you to say a little bit more about that up next to what you said next, which was that on your walks during COVID, you noticed that the outdoor world became a safer place for a larger variety yeah. of people. It, it seems like there's a, a raising of awareness among the people of privilege that must happen, that this is really going on. There really are more, more food vulnerable and more environmentally vulnerable places
0: in our communities. So I I think that the reason that the privileged need to know is because they have to be a part of the solution. We can't ask the people who are affected by it to be part of the solution, but they must have a voice. You know, that's really the the key to environmental justice, right, is involving the people most affected in the solutions and how it impacts them. You know, there's a couple things that we do, going back to the saw more people out in nature, one of the things that my organization started doing before COVID was organize free free nature hikes. Come out, learn from one of our naturalists, go on one of these trails that you haven't been on or maybe you've been and see things a little different way. And we also started organizing community cleanups. Come help us clean up this section of the Genesee River or Lake Ontario Park, a beach or, you know, um, and, and the other thing that we do actively is um, in 2018, we started an urban ecology workforce development program. And it employs kids from, that live within the city of Rochester before their junior year of high school. And they commit to being with us for two years. And it's most intense in the summer, but it is year round. Uh, and it's paid workforce development. And the reason that we do it is because we have to build a pipeline so that the future leaders of the Seneca Park Zoo and other conservation organizations don't look like you and me, because the solution has to belong to everyone. And right now, these young people don't know that there are opportunities to have a career in nature. They're not yet fully connected to nature. So the program really focuses at first on just getting them out in nature and feeling that peace that we all get and that awe. And then these young people become the leaders of the nature hikes. And they become the leaders going into the after-school rec programs in the city of Rochester and teaching the 10-year-olds what to do and how to be comfortable in nature and the peace that they can get from nature and the joy that they can get from nature. So. I say all that because I, one of the lines that I use quite often is conservation cannot belong to a subset of us. And one of the wonderful things about zoos is that they belong to everyone. And we're great at partnering and facilitating with conservation groups. So um, my friend, June Summers, who runs our local Audubon chapter, we had her come in and be one of the groups that we partnered with on an Earth Day a few years ago. And at the end of the day, she, she said, That was great, I got to teach. I wasn't preaching to the choir. I actually taught people. Because when you go to an Audubon lecture, you're going because you know, you're already a bird lover, right? Or know you want to go down that path. You're going to a zoo, again, you're going for a social experience with friends that happens to be animal-based. And then we can learn while we're there. And our job is to have our guests feeling hopeful about the future but also responsible for the future. This
1: is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. In that, it now it sounds like there are all these things that are happening at once. Here we are in really climate breakdown. And and so here we are also as people in climate breakdown and in communities. We've been through this thing called COVID-19. Are we through? Probably not. No. But what we are seeing is that it does have impact on people who are in more stressed, um, and, and that, that, I think, is something that is important to define. More historically stressed, more marginalized positions, people who have actually had less access to health care for any number of reasons, including generational oppression.
0: But Mary um, Claire, they've also had less access to nature. Exactly. Nature equity is a serious problem right. in speak our Right, speak to cities. that. Um, and you know, there's... <laughs> the physical and mental health studies that are out there, public health is impacted by equitable access to nature. And there was a study in Philadelphia a few years ago, they took 30 vacant lots in the city, and 10 of them they left vacant, 10 of them they greened, you know, they basically put grass seed and and ten of them they beautified and they did um, assessments of mental health before and after for each of these areas of the residents living around them and it will come as no surprise to you that um, greening was good beautifying was better and where things where the lots were beautified um, every measure of mental health was improved So, feelings of depression, anxiety, safety, um, you could see the difference in the heart rates. It just absolutely, so physical and mental health was significantly benefited by having nature be close by, safe nature, safe wildness. And a different study also showed that crime rates were down in those neighborhoods. So one of the things that we're really focused on with our outreach programs is creating these pollinator gardens that people can go and rest in. Um, We've just finished planting and we'll soon be celebrating the opening of the Taishan Caldwell Memorial Garden um, in a neighborhood where Taishan Caldwell 20 years ago at, um, at age 10 was a victim of gunfire. He was out on his bike playing and got caught in crossfire. And so we have, um, in partnership with Habitat for Humanity, we have created this amazing garden of native pollinators. We want the people in the community to know that they are allowed to have beautiful things. Mm. And they are allowed to benefit Mm -hmm. from those beautiful things called butterflies and flowers and meadow. And...
1: And that they deserve... Absolutely, anybody deserves that.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, this goes hand in hand with a deeper question, or maybe a, a wider question. How are you, and I would say in your organization, but that's a little unfair at first, because uh, I don't want you just to slide into your administrative, you know, <laughs> uh, lens. How are you supporting yourself? In these odd times of climate uncertainty and in your work with zoos I can imagine but but how what would you say what are you doing to take care of yourself
0: Um, I'm spending a lot of time with my big lens looking and um, I take I take photographs of birds and I I often joke I don't know the names of that many and don't ask me what their bird call sounds like Uh, for me you know I love that Robin well Kim and statement of you know, white people learn about nature, indigenous people learn from nature. And when I heard that, I said, okay, I'm, go- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna not be white about this. I don't need to know their names. I just need to feel the joy that they bring. They don't know my name. Um, they don't care, they accept me. So I've spent even more time deeply immersed in nature, taking the photographs, noticing more, You know, becoming more of a naturalist almost. Um, and I'm writing a lot more. I mean, that's what brought me to this workshop. Mm -hmm. That's what brought me to Meet You um, is really writing about the imperative for nature equity and and finding uh, ears that are willing to hear that because I do believe that if we don't solve the problem in our cities of people not having access and therefore not caring, then we're going to have more problems like Flint, Michigan. Um, This really comes down to clean air and clean water. Yeah for all of us.
1: Okay, well, let me ask you this then. You, you said, Robin Wall Kimmerer said, white people want to learn about learn nature, about nature and, and indigenous people are learning from, from nature. nature. As you have taken your wider view and been taking these photographs and listening in a different way for mm-hmm. you, what have you learned that helps you proceed in your leadership role?
0: i had one answer until you had that very last part of it and one of my first answer was i've learned actually this is relevant i've been fortunate enough to do a fair amount of traveling i've spent um, vacation time in guatemala working in a rehab center there uh, with spider monkeys and macaws and seeing a yellow warbler that could show up in my own neighborhood and that's powerful to think about that connection i've spent time in madagascar doing reforestation projects um learning how small the world is and how we truly impact one another my that is that the butterfly effect you know what i do there in rochester new york could impact you in montana could impact you know it the world is much smaller and more fragile and for so for me as a leader um, empowering every member of my team whether they're in marketing or finance um, fundraising or education programming and outreach to really own the mission more fully to allow themselves the time in nature that they need as well being gentler with ourselves, I think, finding more ways of celebrating our mission and our successes. Um, it's been a really rough time. Mm-hmm. Morale has really been impacted. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter, we know we do great work, but we're tired. Mm-hmm. We're all tired. And you, you cannot heal from trauma while you are still living in it. And we are still living in it. So, finding ways, and I'm not saying I'm doing a great job at this, it's something I really struggle with every day, is how do I get my team through this trauma and keep us congealed and proud of the work that we're doing um, as a team? And when you're all working remotely when you can to stay safe, and we've just started redoing that again, because our numbers are way up, um, it gets harder. And so finding ways to almost deputize people to bring joy
1: Uh (laughs) into,
0: into work and making it, almost a responsibility of sharing the joy, sharing the mission. What good things did you see today?
1: And and that's it. When you are deputized, when it's your day, <laughs> you bring in something you saw, something you experienced right. that you was know, good news.
0: You know, the the camp counselor will tell a story about a child's revelation. You know, um, we'll share a story of a thank you note that um, the mom of one of our kids in our special needs camp might have written about. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is Such a special time my kid got to feel like a kid and not a kid with some special need Um, so there's i think reminding each other constantly that the work is valuable and appreciated and those are two different things
1: yeah and and that then is um not necessarily the
0: complete relief from the weariness
1: but it's an antidote
0: it is and because this world is rough and early on in my career with the zoo, I would go out and I would talk about these very stark statistics of extinction numbers. And uh, I had somebody say to me, these problems are so big, I don't know where to start, what to do, and I went to the Edward Abbey quote, the antidote to despair is action. But I have realized despair is not a motivator to action anger is not it, so social psychology tells us that it's hope that will get us to have change that lasts so again we focus on how do we get the guests leaving feeling hopeful, hopeful. and with the tools to make a difference in their lives so that, um, so that animals can continue to live because if animals are doing well we're doing well.
1: well and so the other word that you used earlier was to fall in love yeah. so the other predictor of being nourished by what's going on rather than torn down by it, is to fall in love. You realize that you are in kinship with all of those animals in the zoo, with all of the beings that you
0: see as you walk back home. It is funny how we've opened up more, I think. Mm -hmm. Our hearts are desperate for it. How
1: do we connect with our wild nature, the heart of our wild nature? You've already been speaking about things that you and your organization do to help that happen. But when I ask that question again right now, what would you suggest to people who
0: are listening? I think the most important thing is to know that it's time to feel discomfort. That, and whatever it is that you're doing, um, it's okay to not know what you're doing and how to get started that's the only thing that's gonna get us moving, right? We don't have to be experts in this. We just have to take the first step forward. And whether it's beginning to understand why diversity is essential to this work that we're doing, or it's beginning to try to figure out what, what does that climate report really mean for me? Um, we have to get comfortable in discomfort before we can move forward. And sometimes it's walking out on a trail is uncomfortable for people. They don't know what to do. And, and so uh, I really like living in discomfort.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's an example of how you is coming to the <laughs> writing
1: workshop? Oh, absolutely.
0: This uh-huh. is somebody said to me, so you're a writer? And I said, well, only because I've attended this. You know, I write things. Does that mean I'm a writer? Um, and being able to put yourself out there and say, I'm going to try something new and what's the worst that can happen if I come to a writer's workshop and see if I can take this work that's been in the back of my mind and get it on paper and hopefully find an audience for it uh, somewhere so that's I think for me this has been a week of discomfort that has worked really well for me.
1: And, and the discomfort which, which I, I really would join you and, and that's important what have you been
0: able to rely on? You know, I have been able to rely on my life experiences and sort of bearing my soul Mm -hmm. and understanding that every mistake I've ever made and every choice I've ever made that wasn't a mistake has led me to be able to have the voice that I have right now. And, um, I was talking to somebody earlier today and I said, until we forgive ourselves, for the choices that we've made, we're just gonna keep living in that shame. And that's that's not discomfort, that's debilitating. And I think also saying, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. We're not, especially white people, we don't like that. We're not supposed to be not knowing what we're doing. And I think the first time you say those words, I don't know what I'm doing here, I don't know how to start, and that's okay. And you realize the world doesn't crumble, and that you can take that step forward and the next one. And I think that's an example of working through the discomfort of just being able to say it. I am not comfortable, and I'm gonna work through this, and I'm gonna learn something from it.
1: So in this time that we're in, which is we can continue to deny grief and we'll just be miserable. Um, but, but we are here in a time where there's a lot of loss with wildfires, with big floods, with social injustice that is coming to the fore in ways that people who haven't been touched by that injustice must see it and understand that it's time for us all to take action. All of that is unsettling, discomforting, Yes. in that we can hold the sadness, and that, as Joanna Macy has said, makes us more available to the creative solutions you speak of you know
0: I think that's true and I think for me personally the art that speaks to me most is the art that comes from oppression where you can see the artists working through whatever they're, whether it's an oppressive government or they have felt bullied or whatever it is that that angst comes through the art and I think that's true with writing as well that you have to feel this this sorrow this grief and often that's when the best things rise to the surface there's a clarity that grief gives you which I'm just now realizing um, that allows you to begin to reconcile the grief with okay to move past this what must I do
1: and so here we are in climate change together
0: Everyone together. And it's time for us to grieve that we've gotten ourselves in this mess. You know, I have a 25-year-old daughter. I worry for her future. Right. Um, sure you do. I mean, and 20 years from now, I should still be alive. Right. Will, but will I? Right. You know, what is coming? What can we do now in a hurry? You know, the uh, Bill McKibben's uh, intro in a series of essays uh, a couple of years ago that was Coming to Age at the End of Nature, Um and you see the anger of these millennials who write about climate change and what they've experienced and kind of saying, hey, you all said you were going to fix this and you didn't. You left it to us to fix and we don't know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like our generation um, didn't do as much as fast. And so that's why I say it can't, Now, it has to belong to everyone, and we have to find a way to bring everyone into the Mm -hmm. conversation. And the statistics in Rochester are discouraging at best. Um, The average number of times a child in the city school system moves each year is something like 10 times. So if that child is wondering where they're sleeping that night, how can they possibly focus on their work, their studies? How is that a thing? when they're wondering when schools shut down, whether they're gonna get a meal or not. That's not just a problem in Rochester, that's a problem in urban areas um, throughout our country and throughout the world. And finding solutions so that people have access to the food that they need and the medical care that they need, um, we have to address those things at the same time um, because there are a lot of people out there for whom just making it through the day is, is a difficult thing. And that's as true in the city of Los Angeles as it is in the town of Ranomafana in Madagascar. If I am making not enough money to feed my family, what do I care about the life of a lemur? That's right. Okay. What do I so, care about cutting down the trees and the prime, the small amount of primary forests that still exist in Rana Because I've got to feed my family. So finding solutions, the economic development solutions that give people an economic benefit from addressing climate change, that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why we've waited so long. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that it's become more and more clear to me is I don't need to just make space at the table it's time for us some of us to remove ourselves from the table it's not about adding seats it's about making sure that the people in those seats um, don't look like us or not all of us it it, we haven't figured it out so let's have more voices you know, we can learn a lot from the natural world about natural solutions to our problems. But if we don't involve the people who are impacted by those solutions that we come up with, then we've probably not come up with very good solutions. Do
1: you know what I think you're talking about again? Is instead of learning about, yes, we need to all from. be learning from. Right. And people who live at the margins, no matter if they're marginalized by age or by gender or by... The neighborhood they by, live in, right. by immigrant status, you by know, language they speak. Those people are more aware of what works yes. because they're on the edges looking in. And so those right. are the voices
0: that are imperative. Right. But you know what, what I mean? Like it's come to me that I need to make space, and making space might mean that I'm out of a job because somebody else needs that job, or should have that job, mm-hmm. they might have a better solution mm-hmm. than I do. And I think that's a very difficult thing for people to realize that what we're talking about means it's gonna really change,
1: because
0: mm-hmm. it has to,
1: mm-hmm. it has mm-hmm. to. Well, I really appreciate that you're out there doing this work, Thank you, you know, and, and that you bring this perspective that is based in the deep kinship of all beings with all beings.
0: That is far simpler than our being at odds with each other. We have to learn to live in harmony with nature because we ha- we are living on their property. You know, the land acknowledgments that we hear—it's there were first the the animals and not and this us. Is so. We are the invasive species yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So time to make some changes. Thank you so much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. As you heard,
1: Pamela Reed Sanchez and her colleagues are devoted to supporting their community, to remember themselves as nature in nature. Seeing again our kinship with all beings, wild and domestic, human and plant, is key to success with efforts at climate repair The programs of the Seneca Zoo in Rochester are all about bringing attention fully to that healing and ennobling relationship. If you like what you're hearing on how it looks from here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know who would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Keep listening and be in touch. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe and Doug LaVisca. Music by Cedar Mathers Wynn and Gary Ferguson. You can find us on social media and at fullecology.com. Support for How It Looks From Here comes from our listeners, like you.